Welcome to the Petro Nerds Podcast with your hosts, Trisha Curtis, CEO of Petro Nerds. This show combines upstream and midstream expertise in a Rocky Mountain showdown. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Petronerds Podcast. This is episode 61 of the Petronerds Podcast, and it is October 12th, 2022. It is a Wednesday, and I am uh, joined today by a very special guest. Uh, it's a wonderful follow-up, because last week we had Lou Pularisi, um on my former employer on the podcast talking about Washington, D.C. insider stuff and the Biden administration. And a perfect follow-up today is Diana Scott roth with um, the Heritage Foundation, and she is actually, I don't want to botch the title, you're the head of climate and the new climate energy division at the Heritage Foundation, correct? Thank you so much for having me on, Tricia. Yes, I am the new director of the Center Center for Energy, Climate and Environment at the Heritage Foundation. This is a new center that was just set up a couple of months ago. Awesome. Okay. Thank you very much for that clarification. I knew it was good. I knew that was new and I was going to sort of botch the title. So anyways, her role is sort of, you know, all encompassing. It's a great title. And I think you're, you know, there's a lot that sort of umbrella that that goes in. And we met a few weeks ago here in Denver and sort of talked about, you know, every topic related to energy under the sun. Um, we probably can't cram that all into a podcast, but we're certainly going to try um, because I like to I like to cover a lot of ground. Um, so I'm going to talk real, you know, give people the timestamps for what's happening in the market. Um, and then we'll sort of go through the the, the things I want to discuss today, which is definitely, you know, the IMF came out yesterday, downgraded, you know, the global economy for sort of the third time. Um, so talking about the state of the economy, you know, what's going on in the market with oil and gas, we've seen massive volatility in oil prices in the last few days and really would like to given that you are in DC and the stuff that you're covering really want to talk about you know some of the net zero EV stuff you know stuff going on in the EU but really want to get into Biden and Biden's response uh, to the OPEC plus cuts and really the the sort of most recent rumors um, you know you had an article that you quoted me in uh, last week which was awesome um, and that was a Forbes article and that we were talking about OPEC and the response to the cuts and what the Biden administration was doing we also talked about the strategic petroleum reserve release but I think most recently is the the talk about the ban of exports um, or banning of US exports whether that's natural gas or whether that's that's oil and I think there are a lot of implications for that so those are some of the broad topics um, but just to give folks a timestamp, it is uh, you know Wednesday, October 12, 2022. We are seeing a lot of volatility in oil prices. If you're looking at CNBC, you've probably seen an 85 handle on WTI. Um, as of right now on Bloomberg, it's 87.13. We're looking at Brent 92.27. These are we've really come off. We're, we've had these five dollar swings since last week, and these OPEC cuts um, sometimes more than five dollar swings. Henry Hub is about 6.51 right now. Dutch TTF is hanging around this 44, 45 dollar level on a dollars per MMB. BTU basis. The 30-year mortgage rate is is 7.14%. And um, that's really, really high. So we're seeing a lot of bad data coming in on the housing side, basically just where people aren't buying and selling homes. That has massive implications. The reason I put that in here, massive implications for oil demand and what's going on in the market. We're seeing layoffs, obviously huge layoffs on the, on the mortgage sector. And you know that correlates to the 10-year yield, which is we're seeing about 3.93%. So um, lots going on there. We may or may not touch in, into any of that, but I do think housing is always something I, I'd like to talk about. And certainly, you know, housing in China are my, my two sort of things I like to throw into the podcast. But I think we should start with, um, I think I'd like to start with sort of, you know, we'll just start with the biggest thing in the room, which is which is the Biden administration response to the OPEC plus cuts. And really this uncertainty, I think uh, a lot of uh, U.S. allies are sort of having on, or, you know, we've the Biden administration had, was pretty clear that, hey, we're going to export more natural gas, so we're going to do these things to help Europe. But this talk, you know, uh, Bloomberg put out an article um, saying, quote, Biden is walking a tightrope as the world clamors for U.S. oil and gas. And this talks about, you know, potential, you know, banning of exports of not just oil, but um, of, of potentially diesel or, or gasoline. And we export, as of July, we are exporting a significant amount of, ener- of, of oil. As of July, we were exporting 3.8 million barrels a day of oil and um, a million and a half barrels a day of diesel. So this does have pretty big implications. And I'd love to know what your thoughts are on that. I don't know if that's, you know, you personally, you know, heritage as well, or and just in general, sort of the DC insider, what's going on there. So um, thank you so much and have at it. Well, it's great to be with you, Tricia. Thank you so much for inviting me on your very influential podcast. 
And here at Heritage, and I have been writing about this for many, many years, we are all in favor of using our resources. And the United States holds over 373 billion barrels of recoverable crude oil reserves, which is over a 50-year supply. And we have almost 3,000 trillion cubic feet of technically recoverable natural gas, which is a 100-year supply. And we need to be using that. We need to be getting it out of the ground. And it gives a disincentive to companies if we ban exports. What we need to be doing is uh, increasing our LNG terminals, making it easier to export, making it easier to have pipelines in place, increasing permitting, increasing permitting for drilling, increasing permitting for approving these pipelines so that we can help our allies in Europe and we can help Americans here who rely on the energy business for their jobs. And it is really depressing to see President Biden going cup in hand to Venezuela, which is allied with Russia and China, and cup in hand to Saudi Arabia, and asking them to produce more when we have these reserves right here at home. And of course, the impetus for what President Biden wants to do is climate change, global warming. He wants to reduce emissions. But if these emissions are created in Saudi Arabia or in Venezuela, I mean, they're just as bad for global warming as if these oil, uh, these reserves of oil and gas are got out of the ground here in the United States. In fact, it's better to get them out of the ground here in the United States because we have stricter regulations as to how to actually produce them. So this is just a lose-lose. It's a lose for the environment. It's a lose for the American people. And it's a third lose for Europe that doesn't have the benefit of our supplies. Lose, lose, lose. Right. So, um, which is very different than what China always says is win, win, win. Um, but if you hold, hold on, I want to dig a little deeper because I think, you know, a lot of folks on, on, you know, whether they're in the field or they're an executive of folks that, you know, across the board or in and outside of oil and gas that listen to this podcast, I, I think it's the, um, you know, talking about, so what, what is driving this, right, from the Biden administration? You, know, It seems very, when we look at energy policy out of this administration, um, it is very anti-oil and gas. Um, you know, they would say people call it fossil fuels, which I do not, um, because it has a pretty negative connotation. But um, it's Well, really- and, also, and also, Tricia, they don't come from fossils. Right. They That's do not come from fossils. Fossils do not make these fuels. They, they do not. And um, so I, th- I think I, uh, the clarification, though, on what's sort of happening, you know, you're an economist by training. You have a very extensive back, a very impressive and extensive background. Um, and so this is not none of this is sort of new to you and what's what's going on with the market. Um, but in terms of what's going on in Washington and what what potentially the White House is reacting, obviously, we have midterms coming up in then just the next couple of weeks. So there there does seem to be a very clear desperation on the administration's part to get oil prices down, to get gas prices down. He may not get what he wants because, as he should know, but over the course of this year, there's there's a couple-week lag with refineries. So when prices spiked, and then it's going to be a couple-week lag, so he may not get this. You know, the market's sort of doing it for him right now uh, because of real recessionary fears, which I would like to get into. Um, but right now, I mean, if, if the Biden administration is thinking about or sort of mulling these concepts of, you know, banning exports, whether it's gas, you know, certain volumes of gasoline, certain volumes of diesel. And again, if we're exporting, we're exporting under a million barrels a day, gasoline, you know, a million and a half barrels a day of diesel and a whopping. I mean, I know the EIA didn't update the numbers for propane, which is a little bit frustrating. Uh, but the end of last year, we were exporting a million and a half barrels a day of propane, which is just Huge. I mean, Chris Wright talks about it in his ESG report as his favorite hydrocarbon. Absolutely one of my favorite hydrocarbons as well, uh, because it's so easily transportable, has massive impacts on what we can do in Africa and Asia, and not just reducing emissions, but just bringing heat to people's homes so they can they can heat their homes, but they can also cook. But we're exporting 2.2 million barrels per day of, of hydrocarbon gas liquids, which is largely NGLs, which obviously includes a big chunk of propane. So these volumes are really significant and, and have a meaningful impact to the global market. And it's something that I, I think is really hard for this administration probably is because nobody actually says how much we produce. And you hear people on CNBC and Bloomberg and everywhere on the market, BBC, you hear them say, you know, oh, Saudi Arabia and Russia and the largest oil producers in the world. Then we are, 
the U.S. is the largest oil producer in the world, the largest natural gas producer in the world. So of the, you know, we're producing 11.8 million barrels per day now. That production has climbed, you know, is climbing back from, you know, the COVID lows. It's, it's about a million barrels a day off the high of 2019, but we are clawing our way back. And we're producing um, at all-time highs of natural gas about, about gross withdrawals is nearing 120 billion cubic feet per day. So it's huge volumes and has a really big impact on the global market. So I just think one, the the global impact, I mean, there are many from a price standpoint, from a dislocation standpoint, um, but I, it seems to be potentially a very knee-jerk reaction to say, hey, well, you know, well, cool prices in the U.S. And yes, you, you make cool prices in the U.S., but your ramification is going to be huge. It seems that, you know, your foreign counterparts are going to be very angry. And the fact that you're asking Saudi Arabia and sort of almost begging them to increase output, angry when they say they're going to do an, a cut. And I'm not defending, you know, Saudi Arabia and getting in bed with Russia and the whole China thing. I'm not defending that. But I'm just saying this is a it, it's a global oil market. Um, and we've never had control of what, what Saudi Arabia can produce. So I think the Biden administration was probably a little bit naive in thinking they could do that. The Trump administration did have a much uh, a, a easier to pick up the phone and talk to the Saudis and the Russians and sort of, you know, push them on, on those things. And and that is beneficial in, to some degrees when you when you're trying to have these conversations. But this administration, one, has not had that relationship and is sort of desperate to say, hey, we're not going to produce it here. We're going to enact all these climate change executive orders at home. We want to um, focus on, you know, we'll get it from somewhere else and we'll deal with demand later. And the problem is demand's never addressed. And that's really where the CO2 emissions thing would come from. And, you know, I don't I think it's all for naught. I don't think we're really impacting CO2 emissions. But the point is they don't admit that we produce all this stuff, but they sort of have to, in a way, admit it now if they're saying we're going to ban our exports, which means we are a, a global, we're not only domestic, but a global hydrocarbon powerhouse. And that has really significant, you know, meaningful impacts. Um, but I just, I would love to know from the, your, where you're sitting, your background as an economist and, and all your, you know, you have a very impressive resume um, and also what's going on, you know, in DC now, H how are you thinking about this and um, you know, how, how folks are viewing this and maybe how this has come about? Well, we just had a session here at Heritage, which you can find on our website called The Politics of Climate Change. And in the session, we were saying that a lot of what President Biden is doing and wants to do is contrary to his economic interest. I mean, President Biden could lower the price of oil and gasoline right away by standing up and saying that he is going to uh, approve permits faster. He's going to allow drilling in all those places he said he wasn't before. He's going to allow offshore drilling. He's going to speed up permitting of pipelines. He's not going to give um, the SEC and FERC permission to delay uh, projects because of potential climate risks. I mean, if he had another, uh, another policy, prices would go down right away because of future expectations. He's not doing that. Why? It's because the environmentalists are so strong in his coalition as part of his government. And it's really sad because there's the blues and the greens, the blue collar workers who've traditionally voted Democrat. Then there's the greens, the environmentalists. And in the past, they've kind of had a truce. But about 10 years ago, that truce started to fall apart. Uh, I think when uh, Keystone XL was under discussion, because all the blues would get jobs from Keystone XL pipeline uh, by helping build the pipeline and also by refining what comes out of that pipeline in our refineries. So there's a big chasm within the Democrat Party. And that is why President Biden is acting as he is. He's giving in to the Greens rather than listening to the blues that want lower prices, lower gasoline prices and more jobs. This is not a rational economic decision. And the price of oil cannot in the long term be lower in the United States than the rest of the world because prices are set in global markets and there'll always be some runaround. These cartels do not work in the long term. And uh, it's very short-sighted of President Biden to be even proposing that. But things get really strange when these midterm elections approach. Absolutely. It's a referendum on his presidency. And plus, there's uh, the real possibility of losing not just the House of Representatives, which I think is already gone, but also control of the Senate. So that may bring you bring up a, a good point in terms of I think a lot of folks probably outside of Washington don't appreciate that that 
you know, obviously the, these aren't sensible policies. They, they are sort of, you know, midterm pushes. And this really we, we have seen over the course of the Biden administration, a very, you know, hell bent on the green policy, aggressive green policy agendas, which I have a, a lot of issues with. And sort of the European template tells us everything not to do. And that seems to be everything that Biden is doing. And so it does seem to be that these very hard you know, left green, and I don't, I don't mean left in that sense, but these aggressive green policies and those running those seem to be what's driving, you know, steering the ship for the Biden administration, which is really tricky, I guess, when it comes into, you know, both foreign policy and domestic policy, domestic energy security, domestic economics, but also foreign policy when we're talking about Russia, when we're talking about China. Um, it gets really, really tricky um, in terms of how, how you sort of implement this. And so I'd imagine there's some issues uh, with in the White House of people of, of disagreements on what folks should do, because we've never sort of had, you know, a uh, we've never sort of had a Democratic president that was this anti oil, domestic oil and gas um, and had these sort of issues that we could always sort of rise above if it was a major issue and do this. So it seems that that's being lost right now in sort of desperation for midterms. Um, and then it seems, you know, what's going to happen after midterms? I mean, are we going to be just going back to this aggressive, you know, yes, the, the climate change executive order, I think in the beginning of this administration, there were just a series of things, you know, canceling Keystone Excel, the climate change executive order, rejoining the Paris Climate Accords, and a number of other executive orders, you know, uh, delaying permits for two months on, on federal lands or, or stopping permits for two months on federal lands. Now we now you can't re-up an existing permit that doesn't exist um, anymore in federal lands and no federal lease sales. So there's a number of things domestically, and I think you are beyond 100% right that people really don't appreciate. If you can impact oil prices, when OPEC can say we're going to cut 2 million barrels a day, but they haven't actually cut anything, and they can increase oil prices 5 to 7 bucks given price swings, the Biden administration has the ability to do the exact same thing. So if he really wanted to change the midterms, and that's the thing, I think, to your point of, does he lose all these, you know, I'm curious, how many of these hard, you know, crazy green voters are there? Because it seems like if we're catering to them, you know, he's he could lower prices immediately by saying, hey, we're going to improve Keystone Excel, and we're going to accelerate permits, and we're going to open up lease sales. Prices would probably drop five bucks. We may see, we could probably see, if he did it this afternoon, we could probably see, you know, a seven handle on oil prices. And give that two weeks, that would blend into refineries. By the time people are going to the polls, you know, they may see, a, you know, healthy three figures on the gasoline prices. So I'm curious, is, is that... What's happening? I mean, is he is that the calculation? And, and and that's changed from historical. I mean, there. So I'm curious that continuity in the White House is there. You know, what are people saying about this in D.C. Um, and what do you sort of expect after the midterms? Well, these are these are great questions, Tricia. And I'm not privy to the discussions inside the White House. If I were in the White House, uh, I would say that he should be going all out to produce uh, what's. Uh, what we have available. And I think we also have to ask, what would a sensible policy look like? If we're concerned about greenhouse gas emissions, uh, what we are doing to lower emissions here in the United States is a drop in the bucket. Meanwhile, we're letting China continue to run its coal-fired power plants and expand these coal-fired power plants until 2030. Uh, what we need is more nuclear power, more dense emissions-free energy. Nuclear power is the perfect solution. So if we were thinking about this in a rational manner and we were concerned about these emissions, we would put in place as much nuclear as we could, not just here in the United States, but all over the world. We would put in place these small nuclear modular reactors uh, that could help people in developing countries, in emerging economies, reduce their use of wood and coal and would enable them to get to the next level in terms of water to their homes, electricity to their homes, which would have ramifications in terms of health. These are all things that Democrats are supposed to be in favor of. They say they're in favor of raising up lower income individuals uh, to new economic heights, but no one is talking about doing that. They're just talking about reducing emissions here in the United States, letting China go ahead with its coal-fired power plants until 2030. And then afterwards, uh, and they're not even talking about other sources of energy such as nuclear, because it just stretches reality to believe that solar and wind are gonna be able to produce all the electricity that we need for these so-called 100% sales of battery electric vehicles in 2035. Now, after the midterms, 
the House is likely to have a Republican majority. We're likely to see more oversight hearings. Kathy um, McMorris Rogers is like to be likely to be chairman of the House Energy and Commerce Committee. She has said that she is going to hold hearings, oversight hearings. Uh, the Senate chairman of the Senate Commerce Committee, if the Senate goes Republican, would be Senator Cruz, who also wants to hold hearings. Congress also has the power to send President Biden budgets that pull back on some of this infrastructure funds uh, that were in uh, the infrastructure bill and also uh, the green climate funds that were in the Inflation Reduction Act. So those are things to watch coming up in the future. Congress would have more power. Of course, with the system of checks and balances, President Biden could always veto these bills, but you would imagine that there would be some give and take in this. So it'll be very interesting to see what happens after these elections and how uh, the power changes. Those are excellent points, and I really appreciate that. And if I was looking away, that was not because I wasn't paying attention. That was because I was trying to grab some data points on China. So you, you, you've explained a lot. Um, you clarified. I, I very much agree with most of that. And I think that, um, you know, I, I don't think probably a lot of listeners are, are on the same page in terms of understanding that, obviously, if we if you were really trying to reduce CO2 emissions, um, you would do it through producing at home. You wouldn't be doing through transporting. And, you know, U.S. production of oil and gas is only 1% of U.S. CO2 emissions. So it really is a sort of all for naught type of thing. And I think there's uh, obviously with these aggressive green policies, it seems to be way more than just about CO2 emissions. And you can sort right, of- Right, right. And Trish, if I could just say one more point about offshoring manufacturing. The yep. tougher the rules are here, the more we offshore manufacturing to other countries such as China, where the regulations, as I mentioned before, are not as stringent. So we would actually be increasing global emissions by increasing manufacturing in China. So we need to look at emissions as a global problem, not just a U.S. problem. Right. And I think that's, you know, that's that's why I have such a massive, massive issue with the Biden administration and these uh, and green policies in the name of CO2, because I don't I don't believe them that they're doing anything to impact CO2. Um, and so right. I think this is a great point to sort of pivot and, you know, number of things we, we can dive into and what you said. But this is a great point to pivot into sort of the global piece. I want to get into I want to get into China. I want to get into Russia. And I'd like to get into the EU and energy security and sort of where that sits right now. Um, but when it comes to China, and, and listeners know, I, I absolutely love to talk about China. And I think it's uh, you know extremely underrepresented in terms of just a, a reality check and how you know the market is even understanding. We're hearing Obviously, the the a lot of stuff going on in the chip space. The Biden administration, you know, I disagree with much of their policies, but I have to say the stuff coming out on restriction of chips, I'm very much in favor of. Um, and clearly, there is some serious aggression on that that's going to have an impact on the Chinese, the, the ability to access, you know, semiconductors and um, and not just produce them, process them, et cetera. So that's happening right now. That That's going to have an impact on the chip side. Some of this is sort of working out because we are having a backsliding in the economy, which we need to talk about as well as the global economy is that, you know, uh, six months ago, you couldn't get this stuff. But the problem is now, you know, if you're looking for a gaming computer, you can probably get it. And if you're listening to NVIDIA or AMD or these companies, yes, they're being impacted potentially by these chip regulations, but they're also being impacted because demand is slowing down Um, and global demand is slowing down because the global economy is slowing down. And so there's a number of things going on there. But I I do think the China thing by this administration and, and by Europe has to be really, really appreciated. We're just starting to see a lot of stuff coming out of Europe mentioning China. We just have seen the U.K., um, say that you know China, they're now labeling China as a threat, as opposed to um, they're reterming uh, reterming the relationship with China and, and saying you know China is a more of a strategic threat um, and more than a competitor. I think that's that's very very serious in terms of the language. We've seen the UK and the US, um, you know Jake Sullivan and others come out in in tandem saying you know talking about the the China threat. And on the energy space, I really do think that's important because when we look at the UK. You know, UK has tied up their nuclear facility, the Hinkley Point facility, um, that the Chinese will, they're not doing it yet, but they'll potentially be building it. And so there's a big question mark on what's going to happen there. Um, The Chinese are involved in that. And so it's really serious. And then you see the Netherlands, you know, if you just look at trade between various EU countries and China, it's very, very strong, including in, in the Netherlands. And you look at um, exports of solar panels in the first half of 2022. So we're talking about 
you know, during the war in Ukraine, as as um, Europe has supposedly, you know, tried to push themselves off of um, of natural gas from Russia, which they didn't do an amazing job with. I mean, they did. They, they reduced their imports from Russia more so. Russia has reduced their exports to them. Um, and then they're getting, you know, but the bulk of the money, the bulk of the revenue, Russia's still getting because they, uh, or Europe has not reduced their their imports of oil. Um, and they've massively increased their imports of solar panels from China, which largely come from the province of Xinjiang, which largely come from coal-fired power generation, and most importantly, come from forced labor in, you know, one to three million Uyghur Muslims in some form of internment and forced labor camps. And that's just something that is it's really, really important for folks to think about how intertwined and, and tied up all this stuff is. And it's also really important, you know, you re- you make the, a very good point about, you know, China's coal-fired power generation. And the reason that is so relevant is that, you know, everyone in this country, including Colorado, is really killing themselves. You know, these utility companies are to reduce their emissions and to get rid of our coal-fired power generation, which is an extremely... Um, you know, it, it's the from an energy security standpoint, it's very scary. Um, not just from a coal production. I mean, you don't even have to. I always say you don't even have to have it. You just use it every day. You just but the ability to have it to. Right. to be able to turn the lights on when you need it. And for China, um, there's a lot of data coming out, a lot of little snippets and data points coming out in China. One, you know, I've said this on a number of occasions, but they've increased their coal output by 100 million tons in just five years. So they're all-time highs. Um, and they, um, if you look at the power generation, if you look at the BP statistical data, and this is the case from, you know, I, I tell this to p- folks a lot. If, if you're looking at an IEA forecast for coal demand, you're going to be wrong. So almost every business in the world is probably going to have this wrong in terms of where coal is going to be. And China is, has, you know, they're, they're ramping up their coal-fired power generation as of as of actually recently, in the last couple of weeks, they have released new plans to actually ramp it up even further. So we're going to see in 2025, 2026, heightened levels to where we already see of coal-fired power generation, which is really saying a lot about what's going on in China. And we already have about 5,000 terawatt hours of power generation from coal now in China. And you had a thousand terawatt hour increase just year over year from 2020 to 2021 for coal-fired power generation in China. That's massive. That's more than the entire U.S. coal-fired power generation. So I absolutely do think it's ridiculous when you're putting people out of jobs and you're shutting down coal mines and you're shutting down power plants and you are, you know, shoving, you know, wind and solar in particular into the grid, especially if you're buying those from China, you're shoving them into the grid and you're increasing the cost of electricity for the U.S. consumer, decreasing the reliability and having a very, very small impact you know, on CO2 emissions. Pollution is, a, is an issue. And, you know, there's lots of things that we need to talk about there. And I'm not saying this, this can't be done responsibly, but it's a very, very serious in terms of energy security. And there's a country that benefits, you know, highly from this, and that is China, when we're sort of all killing ourselves to go in one direction. We're buying the, the solar panels from them, and they're ramping up their coal usage. And it, it's, you know... Um, and there's a lot of stuff going on within China that, that is probably, you know, potentially very aggressive, especially with Taiwan um, and things on on that front. And that's sort of a whole separate podcast. Um, but that piece of this um, is is not something, you know, energy policy in China, you know, is not something being addressed. I don't see by any, you know, global entity, especially Europe, but we're certainly not hearing it by the U.S. administration either. Right. Well, that's really true. And it's especially surprising because now Europe has found the downside of depending on Russia for natural gas. One would think that reasonable people would look at the potential dependence of the United States on China for wind, solar and batteries for these uh, required electric vehicles. Seven out of the top 10 solar, uh, solar panel manufacturers are in China. Seven of the top 10 wind turbine manufacturers are in China. And with 100% battery electric vehicles being sold after 2035, as California has mandated, and President Biden has set the goal of doing, we will be even more dependent on China. So yes, we are planning on building batteries here, but uh, everybody knows that this will make the vehicles a lot more expensive. Then there's the minerals that go into the batteries. Uh, China has burst control over a lot of these minerals. So we're sacrificing energy independence for a country that uses slave labor in Xinjiang to produce all these materials. One would think that human people who are in favor of human rights would be jumping up and down saying we don't want to do that, but uh, they are not doing so which is very surprising uh, to me. They should be doing so. So it's not just that we're not giving Americans jobs. We're dependent on China. 
a regime uh, that has been consistently against its ethnic minorities, whether it's Uyghurs in Xinjiang, whether it's Tibetans, whether it's how they treat Hong Kong, it's universal. And uh, we don't know, uh, we know what they think about Taiwan, that Taiwan is part of China. Uh, and based on past events, uh, we don't know what's going to happen to Taiwan, although the fact that President Biden has said he's going to protect, um, uh, protect it is, of course, uh, very positive. But it's not just the economics, it's the geopolitics of this, right. Tricia, that are so important. Right. And I think you, you sort of summarized that really well. And I sort of think about this in, in a few when I'm trying to get, uh, you know, whether I'm, t I'm talking to clients or companies or, you know, various business to think about. It's sort of three buckets. It's sort of the, you know, you, the China, um, Russia and the EU and, and, and the U.S. over here. And the reason is it's so important to think about how they're interconnected um, is because these uh, policies have lasting and long term impact. So the very aggressive green policies that Europe has had has put them in a situation where they haven't really changed their consumption. Very similar to what we've been talking about with the Biden administration, where consumption hasn't changed, but where you're getting the product is where you know the U.S. has been looking over the course of this administration, has been looking to lift sanctions on Iran, has been looking to, for Saudi to in, in, increase barrels, doesn't want to approve Keystone XL, doesn't want to get it from Canada or the U.S., but is looking to get increased production from elsewhere. And, you know, it's always a fallacy to say, well, you can't ramp up production in the U.S. Well, it doesn't, then you can't ramp in the speed of which you ramp up production. Same goes for everywhere else. So there's a little bit of BS there. But the point is, is that in the, in Europe, you know, Europe consumes about 55 billion cubic cubic feet per day of gas. And I say these numbers because we always hear percentages from Russia. And I think it's very important to just put some numbers and forget the percentages for a moment, is that 55 BCF a day of consumption, 20 BCF a day of production. So you have a massive gap between production and consumption of gas in Europe. And so you've had consumption basically flatline over the course of the past 10 years. And, and production has just declined massively because countries in Europe have prioritized these green policies and are producing a lot less. And then they've just you know, continue to get more and more imports from Russia. And they get about, the pipeline, about, it was about 16 BCF a day in total piped into the into Europe. Now, that's a lot to offset. It's it's massive. Um, and so it gives, you know, gave Russia a significant amount of leverage. And the point, the reason they got the leverage is because the need that Europe obviously had for this natural gas. Um, and it is lower. I mean, a lot of people don't realize is that why it was so important for, for Europe is that, you know, they maintain their consumption. They are, were also able to reduce CO2 emissions because natural gas benefits that immensely. So they get it from Russia. They don't have to produce it. Everything sort of looks good. And then Russia has the best of both worlds because, you know, the U.S., we produce more than double what Russia does for natural gas. But Russia, it's not a big export revenue, right? They don't make their money from natural gas. They make it from oil. And so they've had a drop in the, you know, a, a barely a dent in terms of their revenue over the course of this war um, on gas even. And, and they've decided, hey, we're shutting off the pipeline you know, people can say what they want on who sabotaged Nord Stream 1, Nord Stream 2, which hasn't even flowed being sabotaged. But I, I, I believe it's the Russians doing that. And that, that's a statement to Europe saying, hey, you may have thought we're going to turn these pipes back on in a couple of years, but actually we're not. And that says a, to me a lot about the long term game of what Russia is doing and a lot about actually that interconnects with China. Um, and it's sort of hard for people to see this, but I try to walk them through Europe and then we get to Russia and, and sort of the interlinking to China. But so Russia's, you know, getting their revenue from oil. That has not changed yet. You know, Europe has continued to take those oil volumes, both via tanker um, and via pipeline. And so Russia has that leverage where I get the revenues from this. You need it. You, um, They don't really need the revenue from natural gas as much as they do from oil. And they're able to have the maximum amount of leverage in terms of power on Europe. And so they put Europe into, you know, full throttle head first into a recession where countries all, you know, this winter are just going to be devastated in terms of being able to keep, you know, heating their homes and keeping the lights on. And this is already having an impact on businesses. You know, this does impact the U.S. when we think about companies, you know, in, in our on on the Dow Jones Industrial, on the S&P 500 that are exposed to Europe, it's actually pretty huge. So when you think of another leg lower on, on earnings, another leg lower in terms of stocks in the U.S., I think it has a lot of room to come down. I'm very much with Jamie Dimon on that because we're not seeing the full impacts of everything going on in Europe. So they're going to have to curtail all this. And then the piece of the, the Russia-China piece, which is really important, is that, you know, Russia's been able to do the, you know, maintain this war in Ukraine. People can talk about how well it's going, you know, everything going on in Ukraine, but it seems to be more of a upon you know a one beginning chess move to me than than actually sort of pulling out your rooks and and knights and going after queens. It seems to be these initial pawn moves because 
they're they're keeping it long. They're basically, you know, making it clear to the the market that they're they're not intending to curtail this this war. And China Russia trade has just gone through a roof. Pre-war in Ukraine all the way till now has really accelerated. And Russia's largest trading partner is China. China has benefited massively from purchasing, you know, reduced, uh, you know, coal imports and and oil imports and natural gas imports to China from Russia have increased by a third. They're actually taking additional volumes of natural gas that they're not using in China and they're exporting into Europe. So they're probably getting LNG, you know, China is exporting LNG from Russia probably to Europe, which is just crazy in terms of all this. And so the China element is really huge because they've been emphasizing food and energy security. They have this, you know, they have these policies of dual circulation, a number of things going on in China that really folds into why they would be want this sort of closeness with Russia. They have uh, stalled everything within the UN um, when it comes to this stuff. And so it's, it's, it's very a precarious situation that, you know, we, we are very focused on Russia right now. We're not focused on China in terms of their involvement in this war, their funding in this war. What's the long game for them, you know, especially when it comes to energy as well as, as how they're looking at Taiwan. They've already taken over Hong Kong. Um, so there's a lot there, but I would, I would, and I know that's a lot to throw at you, but I would sort of love from a, the sort of EU standpoint and Russian standpoint, and we can tag in in China, but I'd love to sort of get your, your feedback and thoughts on that um, and how you guys, how you personally are thinking about it and just, you know, anything you want to have at it. Sure. Well, one thing that I'm thinking of is the increased pressures in the EU for fracking and natural gas development there. Because don't forget, Trisha, and you know these numbers much better than I do, Europe also has natural gas. So we've had Prime Minister Liz Truss, who said that fracking is on the table in the United Kingdom. We've had Chancellor Scholz, who's opened the possibility of fracking in Germany. There's other countries that are undoubtedly looking at it themselves. And when you're facing a very cold winter and you're facing manufacturing companies that have to close down, you start looking at these options. And you might also look at the United States and see that our air has got successively cleaner every single year, that we are not increasing emissions because of natural gas. We're reducing emissions and we're doing pretty well. Millions of people want to come here every year and they're taking another look at their resources. And we should be encouraging them to do that with technology uh, and um, enable to enable themselves to stand on their own two feet with regard to their own energy production. Plus, they have a lot of ability to be ramping up nuclear production. Uh, France has reduced it, but don't forget, France used to get 70% of its electricity from nuclear, didn't have any accidents. No one walked around France saying, I'm scared that there's gonna be some explosion from a nuclear power plant. They managed to get rid of their nuclear waste. And these are all examples that the developing world can follow. Plus, emerging markets could follow them also, emerging economies. Uh, they have the ability to frack too. They have the ability uh, to use these nuclear modular reactors that will power small communities and can just be uh, taken out and replaced with other ones when they are spent. So we have a lot of potential for clean energy development all across the globe, which will reduce greenhouse gas emissions. And people who are concerned about these emissions uh, should be encouraging these kinds of developments. And it's surprising that uh, people in Europe, uh, I mean, there's pressures you can see right now, but uh, it would be good to see Europe uh, come to some of these solutions. Now, if we're talking about the environmental, social and governance initiatives that, again, are worldwide, uh, we have situations where the World Bank is not allowed to lend for nuclear. Uh, now the World Bank is apparently allowed to lend for natural gas, but coal-fired projects, no, even though these could result in cleaner coal-fired generation than is the case now in Africa and Asia. Uh, banks are being pressured not to lend for oil, natural gas, and coal. And uh, these, this lack of capital is impeding these projects that would be beneficial in terms of getting people higher incomes, making them better off, and also reducing global emissions. Uh, those are f fantastic points. Um, and I wanted to take this in a couple ways, but I ha we're going to have to just keep going with this because those are, you make some really, really excellent points, especially on the banking side. So, so one question, um, the, this is sort of a two-parter. Um, the first is that 
so I get a lot of questions from folks and people on the podcast that I've had and, and, you know, folks that I work with is that, okay, well, we hear that, you know, what's going on within Europe. We know that they're, you know, potentially, obviously with midterms in the U.S., there could be a shift um, that we get some more sensible policymaking or at least a check on sort of the White House from trying to do things that that we probably will see some more positive things in the U.S. on an energy front, right? Potentially interest in, in building, you know, a natural gas pipeline out of the Marcellus, which could really help for exports, et cetera. Um, but in Europe, people always ask, so, well, is it happening? And, and I... I say, regardless of whether they admit to it or not, you do have a lot of sort of feckless leadership, I think, in Europe. There's a lot of weakness. Um, I don't hear very positive things about Olaf Scholz in terms of how he's viewed, how um, the stam- like how the country views him. He just doesn't seem like a strong leader. Um, so I don't think he can, he can do very much. But regardless of what they say on the green policies and on CO2, they are turning on, or Germany is ramping up coal, um, and they're turning on mothballed facilities, to my knowledge. Um, so we are, and we're increasingly here of more of, of nuclear facilities that were going to be phased out are not being phased out. So it's sort of happening. There is an issue, though, in terms of, um, I, and I, this gets into sort of the banking and money piece, but there's an issue in terms of the LNG, right? They want U.S. LNG, but they're not signing long-term contracts for LNG. And there's that's really, really problematic is that you can't say, and this is why the, the whole breaking down the numbers of what they get from Russia and the whole pipeline and everybody's long-term agendas, you can't, you can't solve the immediate problem without the long-term solutions. But nobody wants to do the long-term because they want to go green. And there has to be the come-to-Jesus moment of you have to sign these long-term contracts with the U.S. so that we can, so that these companies can FID the projects and this can all go, you have to finance this stuff. And no one wants to finance this stuff because they've got this massive ESG pressure. They've still got Janet Yellen and everybody talking about climate on the SEC. And this sort of trickles down. Um, and I think it's it's really, really important to point out, you, you mentioned the banking side, and it's so important to appreciate you know, the role of banking. So the first question, I guess, is um, that I would like you to address is sort of, you know, is there, are we going to have this sort of come to Jesus moment? Is, you know, in the U.S. midterms, we may see a shift where we have some more rational policymaking. Is that sort of happening regardless in Europe? I mean, we're seeing what the EU commissioners have said in these recent statements about both Russia and China, which I think is is very, very positive and acknowledgement of this. But you have to make these policies. And it just seems if you're not signing long-term LNG contracts, that's a problem. And the banking piece, I think, is really, really big. I think, you know, we mentioned, you know, when we were talking offline about the, the World Benchmarking Alliance and these big entities that are really trying to pull and have successfully pulled, you know, billions of dollars of money out of the uh, out of what they call the fossil fuel hydrocarbon industry out of coal, oil and gas and and everything. So it's not funded. And so it's a big problem when your International Energy Agency out of Paris is citing all these numbers when everybody in Europe is going along with it. And this and, you know, your your major entities and financial hubs in London and New York are all feeding into this and pushing the ESG narrative and it pulls funding out of this. And so um, it, it's very, very important to appreciate, I think, where the SEC is on this, where banks are on this, where regulators and how people view sort of this whole ESG movement and the impact it's having on energy security um, and geopolitics is, just seems to be massive. And I know that's that's a lot of things I threw at you, but the two big things are sort of what the rational policy making in Europe and, and are we seeing it and could we see that continue to go forward? And two is, is the role of banks um, and funding in ESG and how you, you're thinking about that. Well, I think that we are seeing political pressures in Europe to develop their own resources and they might not want to sign long-term contracts with us, but if they develop their own resources, that will create jobs that will make them more energy independent. And I think that come February, which is one of the coldest months in Europe, I've lived in Europe for many years, uh, I think that there's going to be a lot of pressure on these politicians to at least allow development in some areas. Uh, We have seen the benefits of this development. We can see the Marcellus Shale is being developed on the Pennsylvania side of the New York-Pennsylvania border. It's not being developed on the New York side. We can see the growth in income in Pennsylvania rather than uh, New York State. Uh, We can see how New York State upstate is lagging behind Pennsylvania. So, I mean, we have real data on the benefits that energy development can bring. And in terms of ESG, in terms of the capital requirements, there's going to be a lot more oversight hearings because the SEC, Securities and Exchange Commission, uh, by looking at climate risk for companies, is clearly going outside its mission. It's supposed to be looking at financial risk for companies. It's not supposed to be looking at climate risk. Uh, The same with the Federal 
Energy um, Regulatory Commission that says it's going to be looking at risks of climate. These agencies are all going outside their mission. Office of the right. Control of the Currency is another one. Uh, Federal Trade Commission. You know, uh, during the Obama administration, the Clinton administration, all these agencies were putting in offices of minority inclusion in their, as part of their decision-making process. Now they're putting in climate change offices and it's just very, very dangerous. It's very dangerous because if they were really to have a sensible climate change policy, it would be, as we said before, uh, more nuclear, more natural gas. Instead, they're using this as an excuse uh, to do more of what they did in the pandemic, which was close down entire industries. I mean, why was, for example, Home Depot open uh, but not Bloomingdale's, when Bloomingdale's routinely is less crowded than Home Depot. Why should I have to buy a birthday present for my daughter at Home Depot, who doesn't really want a garden hose, rather than at Bloomingdale's, where she might like a nice purse? They're using these, and people say they might be declaring a climate emergency, enabling them basically to shut down certain kinds of operations here in the United States. And we need to be looking very carefully at this potential abuse of power. Because once you've declared an emergency for one thing, and you've seen how people react, you can also do it for something else. And it's very dangerous, all these new climate offices that are being created in all the different agencies. Because if the president says, well, now we have a climate emergency, just like he said, now we have a public health emergency, that would give these agencies excuses to do all kinds of things that really they should not be allowed to do by following the law. Right. And I think the economic impacts to a lot of that is, is massive. I do believe from the very beginning of this administration, and I'm not talking, you know, completely willy nilly. This is uh, from very good sources. I, I mean, I think there was an intention from the very beginning of day one of this administration of how can they get away with declaring it a climate emergency. And the reason why is because that once you once you are able to do that, once you can make it an international issue, you can start regulating things on a much deeper front than you could by just saying, uh, putting a climate change executive order. And they did, they were able to throw a lot in that, but they had a lot of legal pushback. I mean, obviously the um, Supreme Court has pushed back on, on the EPA in terms of how we're actually, how they're, you know, impacting coal-fired power generation. And that's, that's pretty significant um, and, and a whole nother podcast in itself, but I think- oh, under- Right, and, and also, by the way, uh, they pushed back on the vaccine mandate. Yes, The Supreme did. Court pushed back on the vaccine mandate and they've pushed back on other kinds of things related to the pandemic, powers that uh, the United States government just took for itself. Right. And the Supreme Court, these went all the way to the Supreme Court. You, the problem is that you have to have some group withstanding in order to be able to challenge them. and how you get that standing is complicated. You have to prove that you've be actually been hurt. Uh, but I'm sure there are a lot of very competent legal minds working on that now. Right. And I think I think that um, it and it's so important for folks to think from this from, I think, a bipartisan standpoint. It's not about, you know, vaccines or it's more about it's the power, right? It's the it's it's when you have legal precedent and you start with this power. So and right. the reason it's, it's important is because, you know, under the Obama administration, they did curtail. I remember this being no one paid attention to it, but I thought it was a very big deal when we we weren't going to fund India. We weren't going to allow the Export Import Bank to give money to India for mm-hmm. uh, anything to buy. They wanted to buy backhoes and stuff made in the U.S., but it was for coal extraction. And so we said, the Obama administration said, no, it's for coal, so we're not going to do that, even though it produced jobs and stuff in the U.S. So it was sort of a statement of, you know, the direction they were going. And then these climate change policies, and, you know, they're very much umbrella policies. So these aggressive green policies, which we've seen in Europe, obviously having a very damning impact um, Mm -hmm. in Europe, but we've seen it in China as well. And I harp on that because China is able to sort of throw everything underneath it and say, this is in the name of, you know, climate, we're doing this. And, And obviously they're not really doing it because of all the aggressive uh, coal that they're producing for for an energy security, but they're able to sort of throw a lot of stuff into it, right? They, they've had um, the impacting even you know just how folks are um, goat herders are you know in Tibet um, the ability because they can say hey this is damaging the ground this is damaging the environment so they restrict those goat herders and they they try to put these people into um, into facilities and things like that so they're able to sort of use it in lots of ways and I'm not saying the U.S. is doing that but the point is that when you have these broad blanket brushstroke policies, um, they have lasting and damaging consequences. And that brings me to the point of, I think, talking about the economy. Um, And I I think we should close with that because um, the administration not only, and the reason I keep bringing up the administration is we're ahead of midterm, so the impact is huge, but 
the Biden administration has an energy problem and he also, I mean, they also have a major economy problem. So um, the global economy is slowing down. I mean, part of why we're seeing oil prices down is not just, I mean, it, it's because of these massive recession fears, right? And, and worries. We also have a very strong dollar um, because of the Fed raising rates. And so that has an inverse relationship. But the state of the of the global economy, the IMF has, has this is the third, so, you know, dec- third ratcheting down of global economic forecasts. I have, you know, been on this for over a year, explaining to all of my clients, you know, when you reduce GDP is very, gross domestic product is very highly correlated to oil demand. When when GDP and economic growth slows in the world, oil demand is going to slow as well. It's just a reality. That's, that's why it's important. But separate from that, just the state of the economy, um, by, they have a problem because things, the, there's a tight a labor market that's sort of tight everywhere around the globe because of a lot of um, fiscal lags and a lot of pandemic era re- restrictions um, and folks just quitting jobs, not incentivized to go back to work. There's a lot going on in that front um, that we we haven't seen that. And that's really, really hard because we have inflation and inflation has in, in itself helped pull down the U.S. economy for sure. I know folks don't want to admit that, but that, that's why you have to cool inflate. Inflation can trigger a recession because prices are too high. And so for, you know, the bottom 50% of America, inflation is a very, very serious. I mean, it's serious for all of us when you're trying to buy bacon and it's $16 for a pack of 12 pieces of bacon. Um, but it's a serious for everyone who's most of their paycheck is going to food and fuel. And um, that's, it's massive um, because that they just have no discretionary income. And we're seeing that when it comes from Walmart to Target to anywhere else. I mean, you're looking at, um, you're looking at uh, inventory levels across the board for companies. And the reason why, you know, the S&P 500 and all the stocks are down is because um, as the Fed raises rates, it's not just about the Fed raising rates, but it's that people can't buy this discretionary stuff. Um, and so these pie in the sky evaluations don't hold up. And it's, it's really serious in terms of what the U.S. economy looks like. And so, um, and I think Janet Yellen just had an interview um, that was on CNBC yesterday, and she talked about Fed independence and, and them doing their own thing. But, you know, a lot of folks are, are pretty concerned about this jacking up raising rates um, and, you know, cooling off the economy. And I think it's inevitability. They have to raise rates because they let inflation get out of control. It's over 8%. Um, and we are sticky. Inflation is very problematic for the health of the economy. And so as they're raising rates, uh, unemployment's going to have to go up. And, it, and it's one of those things that's really, really hard. I mean, it's not something this administration has to deal with with midterms because we're not seeing that rise in unemployment. But all the wage increases that folks have had and the bottom half of America have been completely and more than eroded by inflation. And it's just a, it's such a serious thing for folks to realize is that, you know, it, we have an unprecedented geopolitical, economic, energy, um, and and wartime era situation. So it's why all these policies sort of matter that much more. But, um, you know, I'm, I'm very, you know, dialed into the state of the housing market in the U.S. and everything going on. And and all of them have a, there's nothing positive, especially from an oil demand standpoint. And I I don't think oil demand is going to crash and prices are going to crash. But I do, I think it's going to be more like a 2008, 2009, which we had a financial crisis and oil demand sort of actually held up okay. Um, But it's not looking good. And there's a number of uh, COVID, you know, the zero COVID policies in China that are impacting that. Um, However, but just in the U.S. alone, I think the economy is a lot weaker than it looks on the face of it. And I do think the administration knows that as well. Yes, I think you're you're, you're absolutely right, Tricia. It's possible that third quarter is going to come in positive uh, and that fourth quarter is going to come in positive because of Christmas spending. Uh, but the first half of 2023 doesn't look very good. And that's because as inflation rises, people have less expenditures, fewer expenditures for discretionary goods. They're paying their gas bill. They see that eggs are over $4 a dozen, that milk is over $4 a gallon. I mean, this $4 number just seems to be through everything. Gas, uh, Gasoline for your car is about $4 a gallon, when all these used to be two something beforehand. Yep. And then they say, well, maybe I'm just going to postpone purchasing this refrigerator, this stove. I don't need that new coat. I don't need to go out to eat. And then because of that, these other businesses get squeezed. And the Fed has said that it's going to raise interest rates another one and a quarter percent uh, in 2022 and is going to continue the increases in 2023. It's forecasting that unemployment will reach 4.3 percent at its peak. I think that's very, um, very optimistic. In other words, you cannot get inflation. Yeah, you can get inflation out of the economy uh, with unemployment, the unemployment rate only at 4.3%. I see it going to 
something beginning with a five or six. Absolutely. So it's going to be it's going to be really difficult. And the Fed has always been optimistic in its projections, by the way. So it'll be. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I'm very concerned about the economy going into the future, going to 2023. And I, I don't think there there hasn't been a whole lot of the, I mean, I think uh, I, Janet Yellen should be kind of just, I don't think anybody should be listening to her anymore when she said only months ago that, you know, before that inflation was transitory and that we weren't in a recession and that when the IMF clearly states, the International Monetary Fund clearly states that two consecutive quarters are a recession. I mean, everybody seems to redefine that term in politics and especially this administration has that we're not in recession. Technically, the U.S. had entered into a recession with two consecutive quarters of, of slower economic growth for GDP. Um, and it doesn't really matter in terms of, I mean, that's the problem is people look at employment and they say, hey, well, it's healthy. It's really, really tight. And I would say it's not healthy. I mean, your point of, I think almost every economist that is worth their salt, um, the woman uh, with, uh, she's now with KPMG, the chief economist with KPMG, um, fantastic. And she's been calling for north of 5% for a long time, that if you're to control inflation, you have to have that go up. And so I think the Fed is trying to not talk about employment too much because they know that that's obviously negative. Um, the White House certainly doesn't want to talk about that, but you you always see it from the top, right? You see it in, um, if you look at 2007, we were seeing the same things, lots of volatility in the market. Um, and I've had a lot of people on this podcast, even just a year ago that said, oh, you know, these expectations, it takes years for this to come to fruition and you can't time it. All this has been in the works for several months. You know, we've had this in the works right. for basically two years. Yeah. We've known the recession's coming. So it's all sort of been sort of teed up. But this unemployment piece, you always see it. So in the mortgage side, we're already seeing it. We're seeing in the banking side, we're seeing companies like Intel, Microsoft, Apple. You you name all these tech companies are are freezing hiring and saying they're going to start laying off. You're seeing Facebook or, or Meta um, cut these areas. And these are all sort of the fluffy parts, right? It's the metaverse right. that they're they're cutting on. You're seeing Tesla, the same thing. All these, you know, uh, the autonomous driving vehicles, all this stuff that's sort of, you know, not super tangible right now. It's all discretionary. And it, we think about discretion at home for, you know, the chocolate cake, maybe, instead of, uh, you know, the, the bacon and eggs that we need. Um, and that's the same for businesses. If it's discretionary right. and they know that the consumer is not going to buy it, Apple just said that they're reducing, you know, recently said that they're reducing um, the production of the iPhone 14 um, because they don't think that the consumer is going to buy it um, because it's this higher discretionary item. So these all have big, you know you know, large consequences for, you know, U.S. unemployment is going to have to rise. And that's right. going to impact. Um, that is it, really important for, I think, businesses to understand, um, not just all the stuff going on in geopolitics, which are huge, um, but for oil demand. And that's where it gets really messy, I think, in terms of oil and gas, because um, the geopolitical piece, which we have not had, you know, we didn't even have this in the 1970s, right? We had the air oil embargo and everything. But I don't think you could say we've, we've historically had a, a time like this where we have, very intense geopolitical risk, um, and also a very, very slowing and sluggish economy that's that's going um, going south at the same time. So it puts oil in a very sort of unique position of, of where it's going, and it's something that people have to think about very carefully um, in terms of how they're thinking about where you know prognostication of oil prices. Um, but I, I, I'm I'm you know I think we can close with that. But I'd love to know: do you have does do you have thoughts on that? Do you have you know how are you guys thinking about oil prices in in that context? Well, we definitely think this is a self-inflicted wound. If President Biden wants, he can lower oil prices by producing more. Uh, but in terms of the economy, uh, if any of your listeners are thinking of changing jobs or getting a new job, now's the time to do it because it's going to be a lot harder to do in 2023. That's what I tell all my young friends who are looking for jobs. And I tell them not to change jobs. I think changing jobs right now, um, you know, switching a horse in the in the middle of the race, If if you're looking for... I mean, I think that's a, I understand where you're coming from in that, but I would say don't change your job because if you have a good job and you have an employer who you think is going to be around, keep it because uh, I think there's something to be said about loyalty um, and sticking through things. So if you're switching jobs, if you're a new employee, your odds of getting let go um, as a recession hits, I think are pretty high. Whereas if you've been there a little bit longer, so, and, and things get a little bit messy, but I, I think also that's really, really important to think about in terms of housing. Yeah. Um, in terms of the ability to sell your house and everything like that. So, um, right. yeah, sticking, sticking with your job and having all these things and financial stability, all yeah. very important. Um, very but, much uh, Trisha, there are these graduates, you know, there are these people who are graduating from school and they, you know, they, they don't want to, they should not be sitting around looking for a job. If they get offered one, they should take it. 
A hundred percent. Yes, we're yeah. very, absolutely hundred percent. Um, and we may have to have a separate podcast just, uh, with you just on talking housing and, and jobs and economics, right. but, um, you have been an absolute pleasure, a wealth of information. Um, really, really appreciate you coming on the podcast, Diana. Um, you, um, have a, you know, you, you recently just took up the post w- with heritage, but you have, you've been published a number of times. You just published the article within Forbes that you've posted on LinkedIn. I reposted that. Um, so you, you're, um, sort of a wealth of information and treasure trove of knowledge and, and an excellent economist. So, um, I'm sure people can follow what you're doing on the heritage website. Uh, yes, they can. And my personal website is dianafr.com. That's www.dianafr.com. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much. Really appreciate it. And we will definitely have you back on the podcast very soon. Talk to you soon, folks. Great to be with you. Thanks so much, Tricia. Absolutely. Thank you. Bye. Bye.